Hey, good morning. Welcome to Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. You are always welcome to be part of the conversation at 850-414-1234, or you may also communicate via email. Perspectives at WFSU.org is the address. was looking at the, the news that just came out of the Florida Realtors yesterday, as a matter of fact. And Florida Realtors, in case you don't know, is an industry group. Of course, we are here in Tallahassee. We have lots of industry groups that are headquartered in our fair city, don't we? Anyway, they came out with a report just yesterday saying that the statewide median sales price for a single-family existing home last month, want to take a guess? Statewide now, this was just a smidge under 400000 And it seems the Tallahassee area, though, is a big bargain in that regard because our median home prices from that same study were coming in at just under $300,000. And it only seems like, gosh, just a couple years ago, that median was hovering somewhere around between $150,000 and $180,000 just a few years back. Now, that is in the housing-to-buy market. How about rentals? Well, the capital city's average apartment price now is hovering in the range of between $1,300 and $1,500 a month. And all of these figures, as we indicated, are significantly more than they were just a few short years ago. Well, we're going to talk about uh, what this means, but perhaps even more importantly, what kinds of policies, procedures, protocols there are to perhaps mitigate some of the rising housing costs in our community using techniques such as urban infill, which is uh, a term that you may have heard batted around, but we have some real experts to talk about that and some other things on that uh, scale today as we get into a discussion of affordable housing from that angle here on Perspectives. And uh, all these folks come to us courtesy of the uh, city of Tallahassee. And thanks to Allison Ferris for helping to get all this set up. We appreciate it, Allison. Let's go around the table and uh, meet our panel. First, we'll uh, start with uh, Land Use Administrator for the city, John Reddick. Hey, John. Hi, good morning. How are you? Wonderful, and thank you for coming in. Uh, a return visitor to these microphones, Sabina Ojitayo, Director of Housing and Community Resilience for the City of Tallahassee. How you been doing? It's been a long time. Oh, I've had not much to do since then. I'm very happy to be here, though. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. So uh, thank th- you for having me. Thank you, Benny. We appreciate it. You also brought along Jeremy Floyd, Neighborhood and Urban Design Administrator. Jeremy, good to see you, sir. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. And we wind up with uh, Devin Levins, who is Special Projects Administrator uh, for the city. Devin, thanks for coming in. Absolutely. Good to be here, Tom. Okay. I have worked for several organizations, and usually what happens is if they don't know what to do with you, they stick you in special projects, but that is that does not apply to you. What exactly is your, your your job with the city, Devin? How does that work? So special projects, we get involved in a little bit of everything. It could be at the community level. It could be larger projects happening in our community, but we help facilitate those conversations 
and do the community engagement, community outreach on a lot of those projects. Okay, so if there is something that comes up and we see this, these little charrettes all over the place, if there is a proposed um, a development change or land use adjustment or that kind of thing, and you get together and have a little, hey, everybody, come and take a look at it, that is sort of your bellywick then. Yeah, we're working with all the departments to bring the right folks to the table so that everybody has a say and gets to hear from the right experts when they come to those meetings. Okay, terrific. Well, because I, I, I knew I'd seen you a whole bunch of these things, and now we know why. Abina, let's get back to you. What is our, our current city of Tallahassee housing situation? I threw some numbers out there at the start, but what are you seeing on the ground? How are we doing here? Yeah, we have um, a unifying concern around uh, the need for housing security and affordability, meaning we need to have as many units available for the people that are currently here. And we need them at various price points that make it feasible for them to stay in Tallahassee. And we're seeing the need across the entire housing spectrum. So you mentioned some of the higher end numbers that would shock us, but we have that need at the lowest end, you know, the lowest income earner down to the moderate um, average earner all the way to the other end. The bottom line is we need more units to accommodate our current neighbors. Um, we're also seeing stagnant incomes. And so uh, the basic problem of affordability for housing or affordability for anything is whether you have enough money. Um, and so that's a big part of the equation. If folks are not earning more income, then they're having more uh, a burden uh, with their housing cost. And so roughly around our area, we have between 30 to 49 percent of our households that are housing cost burden, meaning they're safely in a home, but they're spending probably more than 30 percent, sometimes as much as half of their income only on housing. Um, and so that's where we feel that pressure. We also feel it with the lowest earning uh, households and particularly for those that are renters, um, finding units that can accommodate their families, but match the lower income that they have. Um, and that issue has been generations in the making, by the way. It, it didn't just happen yesterday. This has been um, decades of not enough production for that particular income. And, and again, decades of stagnant wages. And so that's coming to a head right now. Um, and, and that is what uh, a lot of us have our, our thumbs on trying to figure out how we increase the number of units and also how we preserve the ones that we do have so that we can, um, again, better serve our neighbors. It gets into really a an interesting yin and yang when it comes between public policy and the private sector because you don't have the city of Tallahassee and Leon County or the school district or any of the governmental entities out, out there actively building housing for people. You're trying to have policies in place that will encourage the private sector, the developers, the builders, all of that, to come up with that range of housing, mm -hmm. Abina, that you just talked about. So we have enough for people who are making, say, between – Fifteen and twenty-five thousand dollars a year, and twenty-five to fifty, and all of that. How how do those policies kind of push the private sector in the direction of making sure you have a good supply in all of those ranges? Yeah, and you hit it right on the head too about the role of government. Our best tool is to create policy and to create the regulatory environment that encourages. Um, we have within our community the Tallahassee Housing Authority, which is separate from the city government, um, and they work directly with federal resources to build public housing. And that's a different sort of 
element. It's part of the spectrum, but it's separate. But when it comes to local government, our best tool is to make sure that the development process facilitates and encourages uh, the, the production of these units. We create land use that encourages the right placement of these units. Um, and we create incentives. And Tallahassee actually has a lot of incentives for uh, those that want to build affordable housing. Um, one of the tools that we do have in place already is our inclusionary housing policy. And our commission has directed us to ex enhance that um, to capture even more developments, to bring in incentives that will further encourage uh, development and to spread that around our entire community as, as much as we can so that we do not have any concentrated uh, poverty or concentrated typology of housing either. Um, so that is that's our best toolkit. And, and we've really kind of put multiple uh, rods in the fire to try to maximize the, the outcome. Um, but we rely on private sector to help because the sheer volume of units that are required, the government can't build at that scale right now. Um, and the, the private sector knows that work, that realm. They have the tools, the pro, you know, the processes in place. And we definitely want to light the fire under them, you know, give them the resources to go forth and, and prosper. Well, before you can turn the dirt on any of these housing projects, you got to have dirt to turn. And John Reddick, I guess, as land use administrator, that falls under your bailiwick here, too. How do you look at what tracts of land are available for fresh development or existing parcels that should be targeted for redevelopment when it comes to housing. What's that process like? Sure. So so in our shop uh, in growth management for the city, uh, we oversee all permitting for development. And, and so we have regular conversations with the private side who are going to be actually constructing these units. Um, and, and seeing, you know, the challenges or advantages to, to building in one environment or another. Um, while we do have some regulatory uh, framework that specifies or caters towards affordable units or inclusionary units, um, a lot of the advantages and incentives are really catered towards development in general, um, which, you know, goes on to serve affordable housing developers or developers in general for, for housing or, or other uses. Um, so looking at the, the trade-offs, we actually, you know, it's explicitly laid out within our, our, our land development code to say, as you move uh, in, you know, within the, towards the central city, uh, you're, you're getting more opportunity for development in terms of the standards we have in place, um, whether it's the maximum potential for, for land to be developed um, or, or other, uh, I'll say, regulatory flexibility to, to make a project feasible. Um, and, and on the other side uh, of things of, of maybe developing on previously undeveloped land, you may have more challenges, whether it be through a fee structure or uh, through uh, just generally uh, what the cost of construction on it. So there are two sides to it. The, the, it's not just uh, maybe infill as a word to, to look at, but also redevelopment and looking at it. That I think our, our land development code really focuses on saying, yes, we, we do have a priority in terms of where we have special regulatory overlay districts to give flexibility and, and incentives, but also we have incentives to make sure that um, we're also targeting property that's already been previously developed because um, it, it from existing infrastructure, from uh, reduced environmental impacts, and a number of other community priorities, 
um, uh, we want to make it more feasible and, and make developers target those locations. Okay, so you can kind of encourage where these things are going to take place using all those different tools uh, when you look at uh, what the fee structure is and permitting and all. So guys, instead of taking pristine land out in the hinterlands, why not take a look at this because it would be to your certainly economic advantage when it comes to, you know, greasing the skids for your proposed project, but also it just makes it a little bit more uh, feasible as far as the city is concerned and and how we would like to see that development proceed then. Sure, sure. And, and we work closely with, with Devin and Jeremy here as well. Um, you know, in addition to growth management, obviously, you know, overseeing our permitting uh, uh processes, um, we've really prioritized customer service. So a lot of our process is going to be uh, working closely with developers to make them understand these steps uh, and help them recognize what they should be prioritizing. Okay, more to come right here on Perspectives. Don't go away. Affordable housing and how that really comes to pass in Florida's capital city. That's just part of what we are talking about here on Perspectives, which you are always invited to join at 850-414-1234 or zip us an email, perspectives at wfsu.org. And Devin Levins, you wanted to jump in here about what is urban infill? Define your terms. Yeah, actually, so... Ben and John, I think, have been kind of talking around infill, but I think it's good for us as a community to really start visualizing what infill is. Um, we're, we're talking about stuff that's either vacant land within our urban services area, which is our growth area for the city. So anything that's vacant, underutilized, those are what we're seeing. But what does that really look like? I mean, we can say that with words, right? But what, is, what does that put a picture of? We're looking at, like, a lot that's in a neighborhood. So if you're going down Brono and you see some row houses on Brono Street, that's a type of infill. A full block being developed downtown, that's infill. Or vacant properties that we've seen that are inside these areas that haven't developed yet but are ready for development. So, And if you really want to get down to it, it could be as small as adding an accessory dwelling unit or it may be known as a uh, in-law suite to a single-family home. Infill comes in all different sizes, shapes, and it's something that we just, you know, I think we got to paint the bigger picture of what infill looks like as we're talking about it. Okay, and and that's a really good point. And maybe, Jeremy, you can address this here. I was thinking specifically of an area down along Glenview, which had some pretty big single home family, you know, type home parcels, which have now been kind of subdivided. And you have multiple buildings on that previously single family home parcel. That's actually a great example. Uh, Devin and I and John uh, worked closely on that one. Um, It was a larger lot. Uh, we had a, a property owner that came in originally wanted to come in and do like a cul-de-sac and uh, put in all this additional infrastructure, but it resulted in a lot more land clearing, grading, uh, stormwater. And so we really sat down. Uh, one of the roles that uh, I kind of come in is as an urban design professional, and we have other uh, great design professionals on staff, has really helped property owners and applicants visualize what's possible with the code to kind of meet our strategic goals as a community elected officials, but then also meet the property owners' goals and objectives as well, and just put that into a visual sense through drawings and sketches. So that's one that basically we convinced the property owner to do away with the cul-de-sac and basically just, you know, said, you got this great street here. Let's put it in a nice sidewalk. Let's put in street trees here, and let's just simply line the lots up along the street. And so we ended up with a great product, got the 10 uh, beautiful homes there, got a shared driveway behind it so there's no driveways on Glenview except for just the one that they shared 
Joe's thing we did, you got to tie that into Campy Road's protection zone, which is along uh, one side. Got that whole strip, which had been mowed front yard for the last 40, 50 years. So now we, you know, tried to create a restoration project to add that back to our Canopy Roads. Um, you know, so it's, it's one of those things that I, uh, I'm pretty proud of how that one turned out. It involved a lot of collaboration with staff. And if you go there now, there's a sidewalk that goes from Meridian all the way to Thomasville Road now. That's kind of like piggybacking on that project and you can see what's happened down the hill. You know, it's like people come in, add a few homes. So, I mean, that's that's a great example. Yeah, that, and that is a very attractive-looking neighborhood, too. And you're right, it's changing the uh, uh, the whole environment in a really positive direction. Let's add Sarah to the conversation here on Perspectives as we talk about affordable housing and urban infill and all these sorts of things. Hey, Sarah, thanks for calling. Oh, she's not there. Okay, I hope she can call back then. And if you want to join the conversation, it's 850-414-1234 for uh, perspectives. I know at the outset we said that prices are going up all over the place, Abena, but uh, here for Tallahassee, I hear this an awful lot where people say, oh, it's all of those luxury student homes down in College Town and elsewhere that are just making the prices go absolutely berserk. Does that have any real impact on the prices that the rest of us pay for our housing, whether renting or, or buying or, or not so much? Well, I think it's fair to say that any new development impacts its neighboring properties. I mean, that's fair. That happens everywhere. Um, the kind of development that happens also impacts. If you put a commercial property nearby, maybe you're generating a need that will attract residential developments to come by. So it's it's a little complex, but I think generally, yes, the b- new developments impacts existing. But we're also talking about very different populations. Um, what we have with student housing is catered directly to a unique population. Um, and in some ways, they, in a good way, they take the pressure off of surrounding neighborhoods. You have uh, students that have integrated into their surrounding uh, neighborhoods because of the affordable, the more affordable units they find with existing uh, housing. Um, and so sometimes when you have student catering uh, or developments that cater to students, you actually relieve the pressure on the surrounding neighborhoods and make those units available for um, households, working households, et cetera. But certainly if it's something bright, new and shiny comes up, other people get ideas and they want to pursue that um, financial opportunity as well. So it's a little complex. Um, but I do think that I always mention that housing exists exists along a spectrum. We can't solve the entire spectrum of need with just one product. I mean, we need homes for disabled folks that are on fixed income or elderly. We need homes for those transitioning out of homelessness. We need homes for a moderate income household, you know, with two kids. I mean, we need all of it. And so it's not as productive to say, uh, don't ever build this thing, um, because the fact is we still have thousands of units that our neighbors need right now. And it's it, we got to get to production. Good point. Sarah rejoins us here on the line, and uh, we'll see if we can add her to the conversation. Hey, Sarah, thanks for calling back. Welcome to Perspectives. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, indeed. Go right ahead, ma'am. Oh, good. Okay. Um, I had some questions about some of the wording that uh, the staff is using. One of them is uh, regulatory flexibility uh, that is provided to developers, and the other is... um, uh, the use of incentives. And I feel both of those terms cover a lot of information that maybe the public doesn't know. Um, and I assume that, I, well, let's just say I want to know what that means. 
Okay, well, let's get some clarification. We will do that. I think John Reddick, our land use administrator, might be able to kind of nail down some of those terms. What do you think, John? Sure. I'll start off, and I think there are two different sides to it, because I think Abena could really address some financial incentives for affordable housing specifically that are available. Um, An example I'll use in terms of regulatory flexibility is something as basic as parking which, you know, with each development, we have vehicular parking and bike parking requirements that go into that, um, which obviously affects the amount of land you can develop on a site and things like that and and its usability. Um, As you move inward in the city through different, uh, you know, overlay districts, which is its own, uh, you know, unique term, but uh, you get a reduction in the amount of parking that's required to be included with your project or with your development project. So we're going to be more flexible to say you can construct, whether it be housing or a hotel or a commercial you know, restaurant, um, we're going to be re- more flexible in allowing you to use more of your property for usable square footage you know, of a building and less of it towards vehicular parking. And a big reason for that is also, um, you know, as we are moving more centrally, we have uh, uh, more available trans- alternative transportation options. We have, uh, you know, a more frequency of bus routes. We have better sidewalk networks, better bike uh, infrastructure. And so it's a trade-off, too, of wanting to make sure that we're encouraging uh, alternative modes in those areas uh, as well. So that's one example what, where it shows that you're, you're going to have more opportunity of what you can do with your property as you, if you're building more centrally. Um, versus if you're if you're expanding outward and in you know the, the perimeter portions of the city, and, and I pass to Abena to to talk maybe on her end of what they have in terms of incentives. Yeah, for incentives, we look at both financial incentives as well as uh, regulatory sort of process incentives. Some of the most expensive parts of development is going through the fees and, you know, just waiting through the normal process of permitting. We do things like expedited permitting when you are um, certifying your project as affordable housing. We, we really give you a concierge treatment and walk you through the entire development process. And that saves time and money, which is very valuable for developers. But we also do things like water and sewer connection fees fee waivers. That's an incentive that the city has had in place for a long time. And then with inclusionary housing, uh, we do things like a density bonus, because if you can build more units, you can sometimes make your financing of a project uh, more feasible. And so those are just examples of some of the incentives for certified affordable housing projects. So it sounds like, yes, there would be a lot of motivation for developers instead of pursuing these multi-million dollar properties out off of Centerville Road or whatever to say, hey, Let's, you know, work with the city of Tallahassee and the growth management people and all to put in uh, lower price point housing, be it rental or purchase housing, uh, closer to city center because it's a better deal for us. It, it sounds like all of that stuff is in place. Am I right there? It is. And I think we found that a lot of people simply don't know that the, it is in place. So thank you for this platform to share that. We have a lot of developers locally and, and especially those coming from outside the community that are so pleased and surprised with the level of incentives that Tallahassee has. Um, so getting the word out, it's helpful. Um, but also, you know, getting away from the stigma that building affordable housing is this unique beast that is very hard and complex. There's so many people that are involved to make it feasible. Uh, And so you can have a a 
little experience in it, and, and you have experts that will be at the table to, to facilitate you doing that. Still, you're kind of treading on a hornet's nest here of issues because, as we have heard, and we're staying away from the political ramifications for sure, that will be coming up, by the way, uh, when we go into our political perspectives, which is going to be closer to the elections in August and also November. So we'll get into all that stuff much later. But I'm, I'm thinking, Devin Levin, since you, you are out there on the hustings and when there is a project or a, a, chain, a potential change change in a neighborhood design or something, you have to be on deck there to kind of walk people through it and explain what's going on there. Do you get a lot of pushback from folks who say, well, gosh, our neighborhood has been kind of the way it's been since forever, and we don't like the idea of any kind of change, not no way, not no how? I I think that's something that you're going to see in any community, right? People care about place. They care about where they live. They care about what it is. But I think that's one of those things as you you come together, you start – when we have these kind of conversations, we allow it to open up into a bigger discussion. And I think we're talking about incentives here as part of this, right? Some of these incentives are built into the property itself from years ago. We have roadway infrastructure. We have sewer. We have stormwater. We have access. So these lots become you know, really valuable in their own outside of code or anything else just by where they're set within the current fabric of our community. So that's the way I would look at it is – Everybody's passionate about what they're passionate about, and I think that's one of us coming together here as a community, being able to talk about these neighborhoods, talk about what's available, and how we grow together is where we're really looking as a community to go. Because I even saw just two days ago there was another study, not the one that we mentioned at the outset of the program, but a study that showed that in the, what was it, uh, 25 to 40 demographic. Tallahassee is one of the hotter communities in the Southeast right now. And we're seeing a lot of influx of folks in that age bracket, particularly coming off the pandemic when, hey, I don't have to go to Los Angeles or Chicago or Atlanta or New York City. You can do whatever you want to do from anywhere. And the quality of life of this town is very appealing to folks in that particular demographic. So, uh, Jeremy Floyd, you seeing those kinds of changes in our in our town? Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing a change in, like, what the product wants. I think for the longest time, the newest product that come to market, you had basically detached single family at a pretty fixed price point, and you had, like, just a couple options, or you went straight to apartments. And there hasn't been anything in between. And so I think now we're starting to see a demand for kind of the mix of housing product. We, you know, talked about the ADUs. Uh, we've got duplexes, duplexes that don't have to look like duplexes. Um, they don't have to be side by side. They can be stacked where it looks like a two-story single-family house. You've got a detached garage in the back, ADU above it or attached to the side of it. You've got triplexes, courtyard-type homes. Um, and so we're starting to get folks come in and see this and start – and you know, a lot of great info out there is, you know, to visualize density. When someone throws out a number, oh, something is 12 units an acre or 15 units an acre – that doesn't necessarily mean apartment complex. That can mean single family housing and done in different ways. And so I think that's one of the things that we take uh, design professionals on staff working with Devin, you know, Ben and John here, is when applicants come in, they might come in with an idea, hey, here's an apartment project I wanna do is totally maxed out. And you know, while code may allow that, you know, we'll actually sit down and sketch out some options and say, hey, here's some other ways you may visualize that to scale it down to a much more neighborhood scale and then kind of show them these are all the thresholds that you have to hit. Like if you match it out, this is a very involved process you have to go through. Or if you scale it back and, hey, if you, you're able to hit different price points and maybe lower 
their overall price for a product, you know, that the consumer ultimately buys by, you know, scaling back to, you know, the permitting thresholds and say, okay, just stay under this, blend it into the neighborhood more. Ben, maybe you can talk about this because I heard this as well with uh, projects closer to the universities, such as College Town, the potential freeing up of a lot of those more distant apartment complexes that had been predominantly for student occupancy to other purposes being reused for maybe, you know, a starter places for young professionals or something. You, are we seeing any of that happening? We are. And it's really exciting. Um, you know, if I put on my sustainability hat for a second, the most sustainable building is the one that already exists. And so adaptive reuse is a excellent way to Um, address infill to increase our housing stock, whether you're converting from a commercial property to now housing or um, housing that may have been uh, exclusively for students are now being reshuffled, you know. And so, you know, the difference with a student housing is you might go into one apartment unit and every bedroom is sort of its own separate unit. We're seeing developers that are coming to the table interested in converting those into something that's more appropriate for a small family. Um, and so so that's exciting to see. Again, I think folks want to be part of the solution. And if our, if our, um, if our government provides as many tools as possible, I think we'll see the creativity rise to the need. Well, we are back here, I think, in, in land use because, if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, John Reddick, but uh, aren't we going through revamp of our, our comp, our comprehensive plan right now to determine what goes where, when, how, which? And that complicates your life, doesn't it? <laughs> it can. I, I wouldn't say complicates. I think it, it requires whatever results from that, which which is will be you know, overseen by our planning department staff, um, that ultimately trickles down into our land development code, which is you know in place to implement our comprehensive plan. Um, so certainly uh, with you know all comprehensive plan updates, it, it can sometimes require uh, a restructuring of certain policies that we have in our land development code. Uh, so that can find its way to us. Um, but if I can touch back on on adaptive reuse because uh, I think that's a great uh, example where uh, you know good infill doesn't have to be tearing down something and building something new. Um, it can be, you know, a second life for a building. And a great example of that, um, which was a coordinated effort between growth management, uh, housing, and the planning department, was finding opportunity for the conversion of underutilized uh, motel properties to convert that into housing. Um, and that was one about a year ago that, that our, our commission adopted, uh, finding a, a way to make that achievable to convert what were formerly you know, motel rooms into what well, I'll borrow a term from a business shop, uh, naturally occurring affordable housing uh, in that sense. Uh, so it may not be income restricted necessarily, uh, but but it is a as far as the the, the housing landscape goes, considered affordable units. Um, so we uh, changed uh, uh, some of our framework to allow that, make that more achievable for developers. And since we did that, we have one currently one, one project. Uh, uh, under construction to convert a, a, a site at the corner of Appalachia and, and Capital Circle. Um, and But I would say, I'll use the term frequently, um, getting inquiries from uh, uh, developers, but locally and nationally, looking at sites throughout Tallahassee to try to take that on. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking uh, 
of that reuse, uh, specifically uh, pretty close to where I live, the uh, the old Wyndham then converted to tapestry and mm-hmm. assisted living. Uh, community, sure, and uh, and they made a really nice redevelopment of that. You never would have known that it was uh, really a motel, yeah, at one time. Mm-hmm. So, are are we going to see more of that too to avoid the you know the, the empty strip mall syndrome that afflicts so much, particularly uh, you know of the southeast and even the northeast? You see these things just derelict and sitting there. Think about that for a second, because we're going to talk about that on the other side of this break. In the meantime, affordable housing and similar issues, all at eight five zero four one four one two three four. We are back on Perspectives, which, by the way, is always available online at WFSU.org. We archive each show in its entirety, and it's typically up within a day or so of when it actually airs on the radio, so you can go back in and check it out over and over and over again. Talking uh, affordable housing, inclusionary housing, resilient housing, and the reuse of property for even better uses than perhaps they were originally. But, of course, we live in an area where water is a very big deal. And I don't know, Devin, is, what do we do with storm water here? And, and, and how do you keep it from, like, entering the places where we live? I think this is going to be a conversation between kind of John uh, Floyd and myself on this one. So we talked about incentives earlier. And looking at incentives, another one is when you look at these areas, you just mentioned right before the break, the, the strip malls and things like that. Those right now have concrete across the whole site. They're in our urban areas. When you are able to take advantage of that, you usually don't have to do stormwater on those sites. So it allows for us to build up on those sites. Um, I think there's, you know, the code itself tells us how we can do that. John, do you want to kind of tell a little bit about how that works in the code? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if you are, the basic principle is if you have grass and you're putting what we'll call an impervious surface, so think any sort of hardscape or a roof or anything like that, that's going to increase runoff and that needs to be collected and treated and, and make sure that it's, you know, when the water's leaving that site, it's meeting our water quality standards and that it's not leaving it at a rate that's going to, you know, flood downstream neighbors. Um, so that is one thing that, you know, if you're developing, you know, a green site, that's going to require a lot of space on your property to put in a pond, basically, to collect that and treat it. Um, so back to Devin, on if you're able to to capitalize on, on a property that was maybe constructed 30, 40 years ago and already had to put in all that infrastructure to, to, to treat that, then that's one less thing you have to invest in as, as someone taking over that property. And that doesn't have to be, I know we use the term developer here sort of broadly, but developer can be a large site or it can be someone who constructs single family homes and does small projects, you know, independent comp- contractors, things like that. Really a property owner is a yeah, developer at the end of the day. So. Hey, and with that, John, um, I think we want to bring Floyd in on this one. Also, you would be able to do like green space, right? Like it helps improve the green space, get you know more trees potentially, where we may not have them. Yeah, yeah. You end up, you know, at the end of the day, you end up with a better product because it's less environmental impact. Because you know, if you come in and have to do stormwater, uh, that really goes back into the affordable housing concept because doing stormwater on site. It's a huge number to just to do even a small stormwater facility, and it also impacts what you can actually fit on the site. It takes away from impact, means more trees cut down, and so one of the things that we you know we really try to encourage is you go. I mean, great example of some of the parcels on South Monroe and stuff that have been adaptive reuse. Yeah, you know, they're full of concrete asphalt, and they've been repurposed in a number of ways that have turned out great. 
The other thing that helps uh, a lot is investment in regional stormwater facilities that we've done as a public community. Uh, we've got Lake Alberta on Lake Bradford Road, New Ponds on Family Way, Cascade Park downtown. Uh, all those are great investments because if you do regional facilities, then uh, property owners can send their stormwater to a regional facility rather than trying to do individual ponds on site. And the thing to help with that is you're going to get way better treatment and water quality is large regional pond than you are of these individual ponds that are you know trying to be maintained on all these different sites. And so those those are things that are very important to kind of the you know the affordable housing conversation. I, I think Tisha wants to jump in here too. She's on line one listening to us uh, as we continue our discussion here of affordable housing and all of the other ramifications there. Tisha, thanks for calling. Welcome to Perspectives. Hey, thank you. Um I was really intrigued by the idea of taking that student housing that's farther out on West Tennessee and turning that into um, housing for families. And I was wondering a couple questions about this, actually. Um, Does the city or county incentivize or have any programs to incentivize developers to do that? Or what would a developer need to, um, to be incentivized to make that housing that really hits that multi-person family minimum wage income you know, eight to nine hundred dollars a month for for four people kind of problem area that we have here in Tallahassee. Oh, great question, Tisha. Let's see, Benna, what do you yeah. think? I'm so glad you asked, and I hope that you uh, can facilitate some of that in the future, too. We need all hands on deck. The first step is to get in touch with the city and uh, designate your intention for it to be a certified affordable housing. Very simple process. If a developer commits to renting their units or selling them at a certain price point, we can certify it. And that opens it up for incentives like water and sewer connection, if it was a new development or if it's necessary to expand. Um, We can, like I mentioned, expedite the development process for them, facilitate their permitting process. Um, We can facilitate conversations with surrounding neighborhoods and help them to uh, program their their unit. We can connect them with subcontractors that are interested in being part of the work. Uh, There is just a a world of, of options and opportunities. I think even my colleagues have mentioned with the design um efforts. And so you might have an existing building, but maybe there's some landscape related things that you need to do to accommodate a conversion. Our team can help do, you know, do that with you for free. So um, we just say begin the conversation by getting in touch with us if you are wanting to certify the project for affordable housing. And then that opens it up for a ton of the other incentives that we can walk through with you. Well, whether you are repurposing former student apartment complexes or doing something new with old strip malls or building a brand new from scratch development on a previously pristine land. Someone's got to do the work, and I think that is what Pat would like to address. She's calling us up here on Line 6 on Perspectives. Hey, Pat. Hey, how you doing? Real good. Thanks for calling. Yeah, you know, the, the problem in Florida, there's a number of other states have this problem, is rents are so high and the cost of housing is so high that in order for a family to afford a two-bedroom apartment, averages they need to make $52,000 a year. So the minimum wage, that's not going to happen. What I was wondering is, is there any thought to having, like, the trade schools in the state and even maybe establish some high schools around the state that are trade high schools where kids can go in, they can get a they get certified to be a plumber or a contractor, whatever, 
and they can go, they can start working right away. But one of the requirements is while they're in school, they have to go out and either build or assist in building affordable housing. That is an interesting concept there. I know that Lively has a number of programs. So does Tallahassee Community College. Uh, Leon County School District has some partnerships in that regard. Guys, what do you think? Is there uh, other options available for folks to get up to speed on these kinds of jobs, which are probably going to be pretty good paying jobs, too, I would imagine. Yeah, they actually are really good paying jobs. I, I think you hit it already. I mean, some of our vocational schools getting the word out there so that um, young people can see it as viable options for their future. You know, I think we have some ways to go to reverse the overemphasis on maybe higher education or liberal studies and and empower people to choose vocational uh, careers. So I think the local agencies you mentioned are, are trying their best to try to do that. Yeah, but to have additional, you know, funding incentives there particularly, and I imagine a lot of it is still going to be a matter of education. A lot of parents Perhaps too many parents say, hey, you know, you're going to get a four-year college degree and maybe grad school and all that. And the kid's going, no, I tell you the truth. I would rather work on air conditioners or yeah. repair motor vehicles or something like that where there actually is a lot more <laughs> remunerative possibilities nowadays than some of the other things. Well, let's look ahead here, guys. How do you see all this uh, playing out? And maybe... Here, John, if we could start with you on the on the land use side and all of that, since that continues to be, you know, a, a pretty contentious issue in, in in some areas. You look at things like, you know, Walani and the English property, you know, people get very upset about that. But how, how do you see your job maybe uh, evolving, morphing, if you will, moving forward here to a community that is, regardless, going to grow somehow? Sure. So one of the great uh, benefits of our job is that we are constantly in communication with um, you have all ranges of citizens that we have here, whether it be the development community or neighborhood groups um, and, and other interested parties, is that we're, you know, we work through the challenge of competing interests, but also we see what the challenges are that are preventing some of these goals from getting achieved uh, as best they can. So I think as we move forward, I know for, from the city side, it's a constant process to see how we can improve our processes and what we're offering to the community to, to see, um, you know, where we can better achieve, uh, you know, what we want to see done from talking about infill housing. So, uh, you know, I mentioned the, the, uh, the hotel or the motel conversions. Uh, I mean, that was just a simple, we have, you know, the development group coming to the, coming to the table saying, we want to do this, but we're running into this issue and us being able to evaluate it and say, here's, Here's a simple solution. This is low-hanging fruit, and we can get this achieved. And our and our city commission, uh, uh, you know, supported that and, and adopted it. Um, so I think moving forward, that'll be a continuous process to see what opportunities we had to move forward. And and Devin could probably talk from the from the planning side and a long-range scale of what what that means. Really, Tom, if I had to narrow it down to a word, it's called balance. I think that's what we're really looking at here in our community is a balance, a balance of what folks want to see, a balance of how we grow, a balance of where we grow, and how we direct that growth. And I think that's going to be the thing that we're really working towards is getting that direction of where and how we're going to grow and then really focusing that from the affordable housing perspective, the infill perspective, and just the population we're going to have to accommodate over the next 30 years. And Jeremy, you then have to have your finger on the pulse of the neighborhoods that once you maybe have a 
potential policy change that would impact people to go in and say, okay, folks, here is what the city commission has decided. Here's how it could potentially affect you, but you also have to be involved in that process as well. Yeah, one of the things we do is try to help everyone visualize what some potential end results can look like and visualize, you know, like what the existing code may result in and what any potential impacts or changes may result in. And that's one of the things that we try to make the process collaborative to everyone, all the groups that John mentioned, um, you know, neighborhoods, the property owners, all that. And uh, because it's one thing to just, you know, sit down and write policy, but it's another thing to actually sit down and draw to it and design to it and make sure that it all makes sense and works. And that's one of the things that I think we're really lucky in this community. We have, you know, really talented design professionals on the staff, so we have that ability in-house and then also in the community as well. Perhaps another bit of luck that we have that isn't shared by some other communities as I was doing an inventory of some of the uh, places that I used to live many, many years ago, uh, many of them in the uh, former Rust Belt section of the Northeast is to see cities that are actually evaporating before your very eyes, where downtowns were completely hollowed out, where formerly uh, well-occupied subdivisions were now going vacant to a large degree, no economic development, no inflow of new people, uh, young people fleeing, you know, massive social dislocation, all those kinds of problems. And Abena, we don't have that here. No, we have a different problem. I think we've put in place a lot of quality of life um, services, improvements. We really ought to be proud about it between our parks, um, between um, services that are available. So many um, human service providers that are constantly collaborating to solve really complex problems. And, and that is attractive for those that are vulnerable who need it and for those who want to be part of the solution. They want to live here. Um, so I do think we have a good problem. And I think the best two, two great things we have in our pocket. We have some incredibly smart people at our organization. I mean, the talent is top notch and they enjoy problem solving and that's really going to serve us well. Um, and the other thing is because of that, we have a lot of tools in our toolkit. I think sometimes when we're grappling with try to trying to find the balance, we think we don't have options. And the truth is we do. We have some really good options in our toolkit right now. And if we can leverage them, we'll be far along with um, solving some of these problems. Is another problem just not lack of citizen involvement. We got some very involved and plugged in folks in this community, but you also hear the complaint, and I, I know you do, Devin, uh, you know, Nobody told us that oh, this is all changing. I don't want it like this. You know, and they get really, really sick. Well, guys, you know, this came up like two and a half years ago first, and we had this meeting, and we sent out this notice and all of that, and you just can't get people engaged until essentially the train has left the station and it's too late. I think that's a interesting the way you bring it up, Tom, because I think Abena's kind of hit it here too is – People love Tallahassee who currently live here, and people are starting to love Tallahassee wanting to be here. And so we're having folks that have lived here for a long time that have kind of the Tallahassee that they remember. We got the people that are new here that have the Tallahassee they currently see. So there's this different vision or different way that we all love Tallahassee, and I think we're trying to come to that 
kind of consensus of how do we all love it together? And I think that's where we really want to be. And um, it's not an easy task, but we're trying. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it is about options, right? Because we don't need everybody to love it the exact same way. But if exactly. you can find a pocket of Tallahassee that serves your need, if you're, you know, uh, the car mechanic and you really like that job and you have a connection with your neighbors, how do we give you options so you can stay there? If you want to grow your family and you want to have a ranch with horses, you know, is there a place for you somewhere <laughs> in Tallahassee? Probably, maybe with Leon County. Um, but I think the thing that everybody wants when you're afraid is you want options and you want to feel like you're not being boxed in. Um, and we want opportunities for everybody. So I think that's that's where we want to we want to focus on. And if you're really upset about the demise of Mutton Jeff's or Jim and Milt's Barbecue, start your own business for crying out loud. That's always a possibility. And if you want to do that, we are here to help. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe that's a good way to, uh, to kind of close it out here, guys, as we uh, go racing towards the end of the program here. is uh, First of all, John Reddick, someone has a question about land use or whatever. You're, you're the go-to guy here, and how do you get up with you? Sure. So please feel free to reach out to our department. And we have, in addition to me, a very, you know, a very talented staff who's, who's always available to help and when we do regularly. Um, and we are sort of a good central point for a lot of other departments for, for people who have questions that, that may drift elsewhere. Um, but our number is going to be 891-7001. So that's a, that's a central point of contact to be able to get in touch with our, our department. Feel free to ask for me personally if you'd like. But, uh, but again, we have a whole team of people there to help. Okay, and talgov.com, of course, is the umbrella website for all of these things that we're talking about right now, So, is which, right. which is very comprehensive and has a heck of a lot of people. I didn't realize so many people work for the city. It's, it's an amazing <laughs> thing. Ever-growing. <laughs> Devin, how do, you, how do you get a hold of you and you, your team? If you, if you want to try to catch me in the office, it's uh, 891-6400. That's, again, our planning line. But any community event that has something that's probably going to be a little contentious or exciting. I think those are the two ways to talk about where I'll be. Um, if you're at one of those meetings, you can find me and just reach out, and I'm happy to talk to anyone in those public settings or at the office. Yeah, and don't th- and don't throw away your snail mail, guys, because you always do send out notifications to people in neighborhoods when there's going to be a potential impact or a project or something else that they need to know about so they can engage early on when actually what they think and say might make a difference before. Before. Absolutely. The earlier you can get involved in the process, the you know the, the more you can be heard, the more times you can be heard. Okay. Jeremy Floyd, how about you? Sure. Same, uh, same number as Devin, 891-6400. Uh, we're always available. Uh, you know, we, we keep it pretty informal. Anyone's got any questions, you know, want some site assistance on a property that they have or they're interested in or just want to ask some general questions, just give us a shout. We can meet you on site, uh, meet you in an office in our design studio, um, you know, whatever it takes to help you out. And Abena Ojitayo, if these guys aren't around, they can always yell at you, right? They can try, but I think we all enjoy space at the Renaissance, which is a good public building. So if you're not familiar with that, that's 425 North Macomb. Um, Just come on over to the second floor and you can walk around and get some information or visit us online, talgov.com. Abena Ojitayo, Director of Housing and Community Resilience, Devin Levins, Special Projects Administrator, Jeremy Floyd, Neighborhood and Urban Design Administrator, and John Reddick, Land Use Administrator from the city of Tallahassee. Thank you all for being on Perspectives today. Been a great conversation, guys. Loved it. Perspectives produced by WFSU-FM in Tallahassee. Technical assistance from Evan Rossi. I'm Tom Flanagan. Speaking of communities, how about that groundbreaking earlier this week for Independence Landing? 
Huh? We're going to talk about that in great detail coming up next Thursday, right here on Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. Take care.